now I've seen things that I'd never seen before. You know, the proudest moment of my life has been taken away because of that. People that know me would say I'm a nice guy. But on the pitch, I had to be a different person if I wanted to succeed. The top-level players that I've played with, Lampard, John Terry, Steven Gerrard, I think look like they don't enjoy it. They are constantly battling for the next thing. Were they intense? So intense, yeah. And, you know, a big reason why I'm the person I am. I played for England in an era where it felt like there was a huge pressure. You know, we had an opportunity to win World Cups and because we didn't, it was heaped on players. I've got my mum, my dad and friends in the crowd. And then you come on and get booed by 70,000. It's, it's hard to come back from that. My mum was crying, my dad had to have a fight. I was thinking about giving up football. I think I wasn't seen as what an England striker should look like. I was so scared. I was just wanted to hide away. In that phase, you were turning to drink more than you should have been. But I needed to at that time. You're not seen as people. It's like you're well paid, so you have to endure this abuse. You know, you put yourself in a position to be shot at. But like what I've seen with certainly Harry Maguire, the criticism goes beyond criticism. It's gone too far. I'm so proud to represent my country, but... Peter. Where do I need to start in your story to really understand you? What's the most pertinent, relevant things that someone listening to this needs to know about you to understand you um well right at the start i suppose i think it's everything comes from um your childhood right um i am who i am and shaped by my, by my parents and my friends uh and i suppose people see me now obviously like i had a determination to be a footballer a huge determination to be a footballer uh, and then people see me now um, as a footballer who has a laugh, I suppose. And that is my persona. Um, and But that stems from from my childhood, really, and being a little bit different, looking a little bit different and having a maybe a defence mechanism. Um, and that humour, probably, that you see, uh, which is me now, um, yeah, it was a little bit of a defence mechanism. When someone came at me, I'd always be funnier than they would be. And then that stops whoever's saying it in their tracks, you know? And then that being so tall at such a young age was was difficult at times, but that kind of defense mechanism was, I'll laugh at myself before you can laugh at me. And that that stood me in good stead. And and even now, that's, you know, that's the way I get through things. When was the, when was the first time that you, that you realized that you were different? Because like, I, I remember coming to the UK from Botswana in mm. Africa, and I was the only black kid in an all-white school. And there's like, there's some day, I think I remember specifically a comment that a kid made to me on the playground, which really put into like perspective that I was actually different to them. Mm. It was something about my hair. Um, I had like a little, little like kind of Jackson 5 Afro going on that I'd combed out. Mm. And from that day onwards, it was, I kind of noticed that I was different. Can you recall a time where you've, you realised that you being taller was made you different yeah well i think it's only it's only people with with experience like older people that that notice anything like that isn't it really i think like as kids we just grow up everyone's the same aren't they and then um it's older kids so like when i was you know i was always the tallest in my class but my mum and dad never made a big deal of it 
to me. Um, I was always taller than everyone else. And then when we started to play football, and then when I started to be good at football, you would hear things on the sideline that, yeah, but he's a couple of years older or, yeah, he's good, but he's, he's too old. and Because um, you're only judged by your height. At that at that yeah. age, so I'd hear things from the parents, and then um, you know I'd hear like little remarks, like people laughing, little japes and jibing, and um, yeah, because like people saying, "Oh, you're skinny or you're lanky," is is seen as um, it's sort of like you're allowed to say it in some ways. Do you, do you know what I mean? Like it's a it's a describing word, <laughs> but like that's how it was for me. Um, but I I love it. It's it feels to me like it's part of me. It's me now. I've always been taller than everyone else. It wasn't as if I just shot up um, and was different. I was just always ahead above everyone else, and that is a part of me now, which I love. Richard Os Richard Osmond, who came on the podcast, um, was the first person who kind of stunned me into silence because I have to be completely honest. I didn't realize that heightism. Mm abusing people for being tall was such a sort of consequential um, thing for those people. I was one of the people who who didn't didn't realise that someone who's lived their height being very, very tall mm. will be told about it everywhere they go every second and how that can impact someone and how they feel. It, honestly, when I remember doing that podcast, I remember sitting there and going, fucking hell, of course, mm. of course. It'd be like anything else with me. If I had the third arm and mm. everyone said it everywhere I'd go, it would make me subconscious about it. Exactly right, yeah. Um, and, you know, it's because there's bigger problems everywhere, you know, there's bigger problems. But my, prob my problem or, you know, it was my thing that was different was my height, you know, like uh, I, I recently, you know, added, did a joke of like all the questions that I was permanently asked. I had a, a series of cards in my inside pocket to answer every single question that everyone, the people I knew were going to ask me. So it was, uh, what's the weather like up there? Um, do you play basketball? Uh, how tall are you? Um, do you sleep in a grow bag? Is the weather different up there? Right, five questions, but I had all the answers in my inside pocket. So before they even opened their mouth, I could give them a card. Um, and it was just something funny, you mm. know, that, 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 that changed the subject. But it's amazing how many times, I think it's less so now because people know who I am and know what I'm about. But before um, people, I became well-known, um, those questions were just constant what impact does that have? we joke about it as you know mm. now but what impact does that have on a young man well it, it on an impressionable young teenager it had a it had a big impact um me now uh, you know it's water for ducks back you know it doesn't it doesn't matter to me um but yeah as a young lad it was it was a little bit different i remember my dad getting you know really angry about it um because as a teenager you're going through things that are a little bit um you know, you're always, you're not comfortable within your own skin, are you, as a young, as a young lad? Um, so I was the same as everyone else, but I, I found it difficult at times, really difficult. And especially football terraces, like as I got older um, and I was playing professionally um, and then I started playing in the first team and all of a sudden it was like, you know, dealing with, there's one thing dealing with the odd person in the, in the street saying, oh, aren't you tall? And another thing dealing with, sort of 30,000 30, people screaming like obscenities at you, you know, taking the piss out of the way you look, laughing at you. That, that was difficult. When you say difficult, what do you mean? Um, In a practical sense. Because I read at like 14 and 15 years old, you're crying yourself to sleep sometimes because of this and having conversations with your dad about it. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think there was times where I, I thought to myself, is it, is it worth it? 
is it worth uh, going through this? Um, why am I putting myself through this? It's all I've ever loved. It's all I've ever wanted to do. But if people are going to laugh at me and take the piss out of me, um, what is the point, you know? Um, do I want it that much? I was lucky I had a good support network around me. You know, I had good people around me. My dad was was great with me. He'd always, and he was harsh with me at times as well, but he was also really, really good and, and uh, pulling me back up and sort of giving myself more confidence. And um, listen, I don't look like your average footballer. Uh, and I've known that since I was 10, 11 years old. You know, when I watch football on the TV, I don't see anyone that represented me. Um, really, like the you know, like Tor Andre Flo was was potentially one had good technique. Um, there was a couple of players that, but but not many. So I thought to myself, maybe I'm just not I'm not right. Maybe I don't look right. I don't I shouldn't be a player. You know, I had all these things going on in your mind. But ultimately, if you know, I had the determination and I had the ability to, and I suppose the thick skin, which you have to have, to to go past it. You said there that there was thoughts in your head of maybe I should maybe I should quit maybe I should go do something else. Was were those like real considerations you had at some yeah, point? Yeah. Oh, without doubt, they were. That was. Um, I, I, I'm just. I just think to myself, is it worth it? Like, why? I always remember the game. It was West Brom away where I came on, and uh, I missed the chance, and nobody knew who I was. I was just a kid, you know. I was, I was probably the same height as, as I am now, and probably about. I was probably about nine stone. Nine and a half stone. I was, you know, much skinnier than I am now, believe it or not. And I'm trying to be a, a Premier League player. You know, it's just, people just thought it was absolutely ridiculous. And at times I, th I thought it myself. I thought, well, I know I've got ability, but I'm looking at these big, strong, you know, developed men. Like, I'm, I can't compete with this. Um, and I always remember coming on and people actually laughing at me. And then um, there was another game away at Gillingham where I just got absolutely abused to the point where, you know, people were shouting "freak" and "does the circus know you're here?" Like this, these were the these were the things that were people were saying. And uh, my dad was in the crowd. I always remember it. I was walking, I was walking uh, out uh, at half time of the game, and my dad was rolling down the aisle in the, in in the Gillingham end, <laughs> having a fight with someone. I thought, oh my god, this is not this is my first season in professional football. I feel my dad's having a fight. I'm getting absolutely abused. My mum's crying. You know what am I doing? Why why am I putting myself through this? Of course I love football and that's you know what I want to be, but is it worth all this? How do you feel about those people that are shouting like freak at you when you come on the pitch and upsetting your family? Like how, how do you like think about them and that kind of culture now? No, do you know what? Like it'd be easy for me to say here, sit here and go, uh, oh, you know, the brain dead, the this, the that, but Growing up in a football culture, it was like, I, I've been there myself on a football terrace where you, you know, and you, and you hear things. My dad used to cover my ears and stuff. Um, I used to go to Chelsea as a kid and um, it, it, I don't know, it's, it's, like, it's like almost normal. And I know it's wrong. And obviously there's a line, you know what I mean? Obviously we've seen it recently, you know, with, the, with racism and, you know, there's certain things that go well over the line. But, you know, being tall wasn't considered, you know, over the line. So... It was something that I just, I just decided was, that was the way football is. You know, can we change that? Can I change that? I don't think so. So I just got on with it. Um, and how do I think about them now? I think, yeah, it was reckless. I think I think I sat down on a Gillingham fan that was abusing me that day. And I said to you, do you know what? You really like, my mum was crying. My dad had to have a fight. I was thinking about giving up football. I think you'd, 
I think he'd say, oh, God, I'm sorry. I think he would. But I don't think in that moment he saw us as, as people. It's like you're, you're a footballer on the pitch and you're not seen as... It's like such tribalism that you're just going to... You have to endure it for, for, you know, you're well paid, so you have to endure this kind of level of abuse. Um, and I think things are changing. You know, I'd like to think they are. We're, we're trying to help that. But and certainly in those days, it was a case of get on with it. Did that put a chip on your shoulder? You know, when you hear those things and you're running onto the pitch and you hear people abusing you or whatever else, or you're aware of that, that narrative in your head, when you come on, do you think to yourself, I'm going to fucking show these people? I'm going to, does it give you, did it give you doubt or did it give you an extra bit of confidence? It's a little bit of both. I think like when I was like, I, I didn't know whether I was going to play for England or I was going to be a non-league player and mm. either of them would have been fine. Like I, I wasn't on the map to go and play for England. You know, I wasn't mm. Stephen Gerrard. I wasn't Mike Owen. I wasn't Wayne Rooney. I, you know, I, I had a different path. I wasn't ready for the Premier League till I was 22, 23 probably, you know, so... I didn't know where my career was going to go. So, yeah, there were times where I doubted myself. But then I think, you know, I think I scored my first goal and, uh, and things just changed. And I just, it was, one of, it was the most important moment of my life. And it was against Gillingham again, believe it or not. Funny how it comes around. <laughs> but I, yeah, I chest the ball down and I volleyed this ball into the, I was at QPR. And I knew then that I'd have a career in football. Um, like, I, I didn't know I'd play for Liverpool. I didn't know I'd play for England, but, I didn't know what I'd go on to achieve, but I knew then I'd have a career in football. And that was where my confidence grew. And, and then I thought, no, 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 I can do this. Your dad hmm. had, he was um, quite tough at times from what I read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like really tough. Yeah. Um, what does that mean? Well, in real terms. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I think t at times he probably went a little bit too, too far, but at like I wouldn't, I wouldn't be sat here having played for England or having played, achieving the things that I've done, achieving my dreams without him being hard on me. Like I, I wouldn't, would I go maybe to the, to the lengths at times that he, he did? Maybe not, but. What lengths? Uh, <laughs> well, he, um, just certain things. Like I think the, you know, heart, the harshest one was when he, um, he obviously left me at, uh, I was at the ball court in um, at Tottenham and um, I, I jumped out of a tackle. And his thing was, look, I came from a nice background and a lot of the kids were playing football to survive. You know, so I had to toughen up. And, I, and that's the truth. Like, was I going to go into a tackle like my life depended on it? Like the kids from, from the estate around Edmonton or East London? And um, probably not at that time. So, you know, when I got up to... Um, after the, after training, you're like, my dad, he'd, he'd gone. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. So he left me and uh, I had to get home. I'm Bearing in mind, I grew up in, in Ealing, uh, getting home from White Hart Lane was an overground. Seven Sisters to Oxford Circus, Oxford Circus to Ealing Broadway and then walk home from there. Um, oh, I was probably about, I was probably 13 and 14 but I hadn't been on a tube before. I had, but not on my own. So it was a tough lesson. Did he tell you he was going? No, I went up there and he was gone. And did but, you not think, oh, I'll give him a call to where he's... Well, I didn't have a mobile. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was different. 
And when did you times. find out it was because of you weren't tackling people? Well, I thought I thought it might be. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't that I didn't tackle. I think I remember jumping out of one particular tackle. And I thought my dad's going to kill me for that. Uh, do you know what though? I never jumped out of a tackle again. And you know, like I say, it is a harsh lesson, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to sit here and say it wasn't the right lesson. I think it might've been a tad harsh. Would I do, would I do that to my son? I'm not sure. I don't, probably not, but I think potentially I'm too, I'm too easy on my kids a bit. Um, it's it's a tough lesson to learn, but I think if you want to be a top elite footballer, you need to want it as much as the next person. And I did want it, but I, I, I hadn't had to fight as much as these kids, you know. And um, and don't get me wrong, these kids these kids are I'm, they're my friends now, you know. Like I've some good some good lads that came from tough upbringings that went on to be really good players. Um, you know, Ledley King, I remember like Ledley King, Stephen Mills, James Carter, these boys that I met in the ball court, you know, and uh, Nicky Hunt, they were, they were tough lads, you know, from, you know, Bow in, in East London, you know, an estate where like Ashley Cole grew up, Ledley King grew up and, and I ended up playing in the ball court um, where they grew up, you know, and that's a different kind of environment to where I was playing, you know, but I think when you can hold your own in there and, you know, you can go, you can rough it up, you can fly into tackles, I basically changed my whole personality to be, when I played football. You know, like I can sit here now and I, I'd like to say that I'm a, I'd like to think that I'm a nice guy. I think people that know me would say I'm a nice guy. But on the pitch, I had to be a different person if I wanted to succeed. And um, that was just one lesson. When you got home from that little football game where you didn't put the tackle mm. in or jumped out of the tackle, did your dad have a conversation with you about it, about why he left? Yeah. So he told you why at the end. He said... Yeah. Why yeah, there was, listen, there's a, there's a few things that like should remain private yeah, between yeah. me and my dad, but um, let's just say I was I was told in no uncertain terms to not jump out of a tackle again. Okay, <laughs> okay good. And your mum? What was your, her broader influence on you? What my was, mum? Yeah, your mum. Um, what was she like? She was very much like me. Yeah, uh, yeah I think most of my my traits probably come, come from my mum. Um you know, obviously the love of football came from my dad and stuff and, you know, he was very good with me, but my mum was, uh, was, was very good with me and, um, you know, she was, I thank her every day about, you know, she'd taken me to, to matches. I remember seeing her, just, you know, she was the only mum on the side with the brolly when it was lashing down and um, she was incredible taking me to places. She was like my shoulder to cry on. She was the person that I would confide in. Um, they're both, both very, very good. And, you know, a big reason why I'm the person I am. Those players from the estate that you you played amongst, one of the things I, I read about um, in your book was how you could see how attitude played such an important role in who would make it. Because mm. getting from like the estate to, you know, sort of semi-pro level and then getting to the Premier League is a long Mm. fucking journey and there's only a few seats at that top table so when you think about like why including yourself why in terms of mindset and attitude some of of your colleagues and some of your peers made it and didn't make it mm. what's your answer to that yeah it's it's funny like everyone every footballer that's played for England or played I've played with in the Premier League um, they've all got a story all of them I've got 
Every single one will tell you a story about the player that was better than them that no one knows. Um, there's so many of them out there and it's sad. Um, but for whatever reason, injury, you know, there's lots of uh, temptation as a young footballer, especially when you're that good. Um, you know, if you're earning money, you don't know how to handle that money. Friends, um, parties, you know, distractions of of all different kinds. Um you know, attitude, will, you know, the determination, dedication. There's, there's so many factors alongside ability, um, luck. There's, there's, there's so many factors. Um, but I, I sometimes think we don't, you know, a lot of the time we look at the negative side of football. Um, but I think sometimes when you see the kids that have come from absolute, and I'm talking absolutely nothing, some of these kids uh, who are now playing for England or, you know, and they make mistakes, they make mistakes in the public eye. They make mistakes, high-profile mistakes, and everyone goes, "Ah, oh, footballers!" You know, that's what that you know that's what they're like. But like, if you'd have seen what they've come from to playing in a Champions League final, like I think that's a success story. You know, I think sometimes we should celebrate that fact, it's not 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 Kane for making those mistakes that they've made. Um, and yeah, of course, it depends what kind of if it's you know too too big a mistake obviously you can't condone some things but some of these players who have come basically with no mum and dad mm. you know someone's picked them up with one particular player you know not had any boots been thrown on a football pitch and has ended up playing in a Champions League final but yeah he's made the mistakes along the way but I think sometimes we should we should consider that a success mm. so, yeah we don't really have a lot of empathy do we when it comes to no, because it's because it's because it's a highly pro profession um, you know and sometimes um you know, there's a stigma on, uh, you know, why are these why are these players getting paid so well? Um, and I get I get that. You know, there's a, there's a lot of money in football, and um, you know, there's you know, could it be spent elsewhere on people in the NHS or you know people uh, who you are doing probably much more harder jobs than a footballer? But um, it is what it is. You can't change it. But I do think, um, yeah, there is there is that stigma associated to, to footballers. I sat with Tim Grover, who was the guy that trained Michael Jordan and Kobe. Mm. And he also trains some Premier League football players now, gives them like coaching advice. And one of the things he told me was how he's seen the pressure of being a high level Premier League football player completely destroy some players. And it's something that it was the first time I'd kind of heard that because as a fan, as I've always been, you know, all, you know, we're, we're all tweeting, we're all having our say, all commenting, we're all at the games shouting in our little mob mentality, whatever. But then we don't really think that the all of that pressure, especially on like, as you say, a kid that's come from the estate who's mm. 18 and isn't like, doesn't have the tools to deal with that pressure, how they can be going home out, it can severely impact their performance and how it can kind of like just cause them to collapse a little bit. Um, mm. I've got to be honest, I've, I've seen a, a similar thing in my view with like the, the mob attacking like someone like Harry Maguire. Rashford had it a lot last year as well, but um, what's your take on all of that? And have you seen that yourself in the dressing room? Yeah, no, I've, I've seen it. Like I played, I played in, um, I played for England in an era where um, it was, it felt like there was a huge pressure. There was, a, it was the golden generation, you know, the players were the best we've ever had since 66. Um, you know, we had an opportunity to win World Cups and, you know, because we didn't, it was, you know, it felt like it was heaped on certain players um, and that kind of pressure. But when you're talking about Rashford and and Maguire, like I think we're all entitled to criticise players. Like we put ourselves in that in that position. But like what I've seen with certainly Harry Maguire, I feel like it goes 
it's gone really too far. I think, you know, it's, it's harsh. It's, you know, I'm just thinking of his family, you know, because I've been in that position. I've been booed for England. I've, I've, I remember playing at Old Trafford in a game and coming on and it's the proudest moment you'll ever have in your life. And your home fans are booing you. You know, I've been in that situation. And it feels like Harry Maguire is going through, you know, what, what seems to be a prolonged period of this. And yeah, regardless of form, I think some of, the, you know, the social media stuff that I see, you know, the ridiculing. Um, I think he's having a difficult time to as a player. But I think some of the criticism goes beyond criticism. It becomes um, too harsh, in my opinion. Having been in a situation where you've been booed by the fans of the club you're playing for, what does that do to you? What did it do to you when you came on? Was it for England you came Yeah, on? well, that's devastating. Yeah, I, I'm, um, I'm playing for England. Listen, you know, there might be an element of the fact that I was my Liverpool player. I'm at Old Trafford. Um, you know, obviously a lot of Man United fans. Um, but it was during the course of when I, I wasn't scoring for Liverpool and I was having a real tough time anyway. I had 18 games where I, where I didn't score for Liverpool. And um, the fact that it goes back to, I, I felt like with England, I had to be superhuman. It goes back to the thing where, because I looked different a bit, I, I wasn't seen as what an England striker should look like. Um, and I, I think that was genuinely a thing. But um, I, I then, you know, I'm so proud to represent my country, but I've got my sister, my mum, and my dad, uh, all friends in the crowd. And everyone's excited, you know, they're all, they're all talking to me before the game about, you know, me potentially coming on and making an appearance and getting the cap. And then you come on and get booed by 70,000. Of your own fans. Of your, yeah. So, so what I'm saying is um, don't ever feel sorry for footballers. Don't, but you know, don't, don't have to, we, we, we expect that. But my family, like my mum was in bits. Um, you know, the proudest moment of my life has sort of been taken away a bit because of that. Um, but you know, we put ourselves in in the position. There's no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna sit here and and cry about it. Just, it's just disappointing for my family more than anything. What happens when the whistle blows, the game ends on days like that? You go back and see your family. Is there a bit of an awkwardness to it? Bit of embarrassment, you know, because you want to be the one who comes down with a with a champagne in your hand, you know, and everyone claps you in and. Your family give you a big hug, you know, and most of the lads did that. You know, they've got a shirt, they've got a cap. Like I'm, calm, I come down to the players' lounge after, and I'm a bit sheepish. I'm like, sorry about that, mum. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's like you're apologising for doing the thing that you've worked so hard to do your whole life. Um, so that is that's difficult dealing with the the family side of it, because I, I know what I've done. I've put myself in a position to be shot at. I'm sure you feel the same, you know, doing this podcast, whatever you do, that's, you know, you've put yourself in a position to be shot at, but your mum hasn't, you know? Yeah. She doesn't, she doesn't need to hear that and it kills, killed her a bit. It's funny, isn't it? When, you're, when you put yourself in a position to be shot at, which I really like that phrase, mm. um, and then, you know, you get shot at, your family try and stand in the way of the bullets exactly to some degree. Right, yeah. And it's like, no, 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 please don't send me the articles. Please don't mm. tell me your thoughts on it in WhatsApp. I don't need to uh, like persuade you out of this situation and, and like sort of counsel you on mm. why these people are saying this about me. But how do you deal with that? How do you deal with like, um, you know, do you just part the guard and pretend it's not happening? It depends on the issue, but I mean, 
I'll probably get cancelled once once every quarter for something I've said on this podcast or whatever. Um, Dragon's Den, sometimes, because of the way it's edited, it can make it seem like I said something I didn't say or whatever. Mm. But um, So my friends know not to send me articles. Mm. Just assume I've seen it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't need my best mate going, have you seen this? This is, that, that, this is something that happened like early on in my career. And I was like, no, nah, don't stop all that. Yeah. Like I'm not, I'm not reading new, I don't watch match of the day if I haven't scored. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's, that's the way I deal with it. Yeah. It's like, you know, that doesn't exist. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, when I do something good, I might, I might listen <laughs> to the play. <laughs> Be very selective in what yeah. you watch or listen to. But was there a moment in your career where you said, oh, I'm not going to read the newspapers anymore. I'm not going to watch the telly. I'm just going to... Yeah. Was it that Liverpool phase? Oh where God, yeah. Scored? That Liverpool phase was was like radio silent. I was gone. I was... Realised the thing, like everyone's... The problem with now, I could stop buying a newspaper. I can stop watching telly. I can do other things, you know, I can do... But nobody can live without their phone now. And this is the problem, like, for young footballers that I worry about. I do, like, you've got to worry about it because no one can put their phone down for... Honestly, no one can. Um, so any footballer's the same, especially a young player. You know, you pick up your phone for it, right, I've got what's on the diary, I've got a text message. Then you, you find yourself on Instagram, on Twitter, on whatever you're on. And you can't get away from it. And, they, and no matter what the players tell you, whether they are, oh, I don't listen to it, they, they do. They do. You can't get away from what, what it is now with the phones. You can't, everyone's got one and everyone's looking. Um, with me to get through that, yeah, I didn't, I didn't watch. I was getting ridiculed. That time where I didn't score for Liverpool was such a hard time like for me I was just wanted to hide away in in a in a dark room until I scored basically so I don't know what I would do if I was hiding away in a dark room with a mobile phone it's, you might as well just not you might as well go out and face it all because it's a lot harsher on the on the phone than it is when you see people in person if I was in your so you signed for Liverpool and then you go 18 games mm. without scoring 18 appearances right without scoring yeah um if I was in your household at that time, if I was behind the scenes mm. in your camp, what would have I actually? What would have? What would I have seen? Um, to, to, or someone who's depressed, I suppose. But I mean, outwardly, outwardly not. I've never been that person to sort of to wallow in it. You know, I've always been the sort of, I suppose, a bubbly character. Always see the positive in everything. Um, but that at that time, like, it felt like I was getting ridiculed and. It was really tough, I, but I had to sort of fight my way through it. But what was so amazing was the Liverpool fans stuck with me. And uh, that's something that I'll never forget because I, I, I swear to you, any club in the world, um, having just won the Champions League in one of the best finals you've ever seen in Istanbul in 2005, they signed me, right? I turn up and I don't score for 18 games. Right? I don't think there's a club, a top club in the world that tolerates that as a fan base. Um, apart from Liverpool fans. And they stuck by me and it was like a siege mentality. It was like everyone else is attacking him, but he's one of us and we're um, with him. And it felt like every time I played, it felt like they were willing me to score. And, and when I eventually did, um, you can see the, the footage of it, the camera's shaking. And like the, it's like we've won a European Cup final. Like people wanted me to score that much. And I... You know, I'm thankful to this day that they they did stick with me and because I managed to turn it around after that and um, it was a special moment uh, and, and a special club. 
I was reading um, in that phase, you you were turning to drink more than you should have been a little bit after games and stuff. Yeah, because my dad, you know, to be fair to him, would, would say to me, no, I'd be like, no, I'm not going out. And he'd be like, you're going out. Like he'd make me go out after games. And I'd be like, I don't want to do that. People are laughing at me. But he'd drag me out. We'd have a few beers. Like it wasn't as if I was drinking at home mm. on my own. It wasn't like a dark kind of thing. It was, he was making, he was dragging me out and he was making me have a few drinks. And then I realised actually no one, because it, it's, I've built it up. It's, I've, everyone's laughing at me. It's my, it, it's my world that's, you know, no, actually no one really cares. You know, they might have a laugh at you on a Saturday, but they're going back to their own yeah, lives. Yeah, you know, yeah. I've, if, I feel like it's everyone's laughing at, at me all times you know you build these things up in your head and they're never as bad as you think they are so his way of dealing with it you know with me was to take me out for a beer and yeah I probably did drink a little bit more than I should do as a as a Premier League player but I needed to at that time and you 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 bounced between what six clubs before the age of 25 yeah six yeah that's a lot of moving it's a lot of moving around yeah but I I class that as um like if I'm if I'm at Liverpool or you know you're start Manchester United or or Chelsea you know Bayern Munich Real Madrid you don't have to move anywhere if you're playing do you, you, know, you don't have mm. to the course of my career was very different to anyone else's course of, of, of my career um, those moves that I had were QPR was I had a chance to showcase my talent you know I did very well the club went into administration I went to Portsmouth and mm. um, they bought me for like a record fee I then. Um, did really, really well in the championship and got a move to Aston Villa in the Premier League. You know, I felt like my dream had arrived. And then it didn't quite work out. I wasn't ready for the Premier League. Um, I always remember my debut was against Newcastle and Alan Shearer was up the other end of the pitch and I was at this end of the pitch, obviously the, the opposite striker. And I thought, if that's what I need to be a Premier League player, I'm not one. <laughs> I'm not one. Because he was so good. And I, and I, I just thought, Maybe, I, maybe I'm a championship player. Um, so I ended up having to move again uh, to Southampton to get games. Mm. And then things took off. So like all my moves were like for, for, for a reason for the, from a club point of view or for a financial thing for the club or for me having to go out and get football or for me to progress as a player. So I would have loved nothing more than to stay at one club for my whole life. Uh, but that wasn't, that wasn't my journey. You moved from um, Liverpool to Spurs. Mm. Um, how, how would you sort of summarise your time at Spurs? Um, I I absolutely loved it because I started at Spurs as a youngster and I played in that ball court at White Hart Lane and I tried to play in the youth team uh, and I was in the reserves and me and Ledley King came through together. Ledley, when obviously was there and I went throughout all this whole journey of Liverpool, England, QPR, Portsmouth, Southampton, Norwich on loan, Dulwich Hamlet on loan. And I came back to Tottenham and Ledley was in the same place I left him. <laughs> <laughs> Which was amazing. You know, it was like we, I never got to play in the first team for Tottenham. I'd come through there in the youth team. I had so many players ahead of me. I wasn't ready. Mm. So for when I when I come back for ten million pounds and I'd I'd already played in the Champions League final, I'd played in the World Cup. I'd achieved things that nobody in that Tottenham sort of dressing room at the time would would say I would achieve. I wasn't even good enough for you know to play in their first team, which is correct at the time. So to come back, it felt like unfinished business, if you like. So. 
So then when I scored some important goals for Spurs and we got into the Champions League for the first time and we had good success, um, that felt like it, it was a, almost like a coming home, if you like. And that ended a little bit too abruptly for your liking? A bit, yeah. Yeah, it did. Um, I I liked it at Spurs. It was, it was funny because I... Uh, it was deadline day and... Um, they, Harry Redknapp was talking about bringing Emmanuel Adebayor in and it's funny how it works for a footballer but I, I went to work call it work if, for now <laughs> and I left Abby and, and the kids and I said um, I'll see you, I'll see you this afternoon and then this, this afternoon never came I never came home and I just gave her a call and said we live in Stoke now <laughs> <laughs> it's the life of a footballer. I was happy. I had a two-year contract left at, at Tottenham. But I was just, you know, a bid came in of, of £10 million for a 30-year-old. And I can understand from a club's perspective that they wanted to accept the offer. They wanted to bring Adebayor in. And I spoke to Harry and he said, obviously, yeah, we do want to bring Adebayor in, but Daniel Levy wants to accept this bid. Um Obviously, I wasn't happy about it. You know, I was happy where I was. I was at a great club and I, and I wanted to stay. But um, certain bits and pieces happened and uh, I said to Ab, we're, uh, we're on the move. How does Daniel... He's a, a figure that's talked about a lot as being quite a tough, yeah. tough guy. Yeah, does, yeah. does very... Um, what's the word? Tough business. That's what I hear a lot. Well, listen, this is, you know, it's diary of a CEO, right? Yeah. If I was running a football club, I'd probably have him in charge. Really? Yeah. Uh, he, he's a harsh businessman, right? But he's looking after, you know, a billion pound asset. You know, he's he's not necessarily the owner, but he's running it like it's his own. Um, and I think I understand that. Like the, the bid of 10 million came in for me. I'm a... I'm an asset to the business and I know I'm a person, mm. but if you look at it purely from, from a business perspective, I'm a depreciating asset at 30 years old, potentially. I went on to 38 to be fair, but <laughs> <laughs> in his eyes, maybe. Mm. Um, Wilson Palacios was, was another 6 million to go. So that's 16 million they're getting for, it's good money. It's good business mm. potentially, but you know, I'm not, I'm not stupid either. So, I had two years left on my deal and... You must have had his up and what, bent over. Well, if you think about it, he's getting 16 million, right? <laughs> <laughs> you sound like the mafia with your arms crossed. It's, um, it's, not, yeah, it's not like... I know what he's getting. You know, not, that's like, <laughs> I, I'm entitled to to see some of that if you want me to leave. Um, and listen, I didn't get that much, obviously, but <laughs> yeah. I, I did okay. And it worked out for, for both of us. Um but I don't, I don't think there's many people that come out of a, maybe an incident like that with Daniel Levy and come out smiling um, because he is he is harsh. Um, but like I say, you know, I had my running with him and there were times where I said, no, it's okay, I'm happy. I'll see you in the morning. I'm happy at Tottenham. I was comfortable there. And I just said, I'll see you in the morning. And, uh, you know, I suppose you've got to be prepared to hang up the phone and say, and say that. Um and then he kept coming back and telling me that I wouldn't get a uh, squad number. Or I wouldn't, um, I'll be training with the kids. Trying to make my life difficult. Uh, and I was like, no problem. What was uh, that initial conversation? He calls you in and says, you're off. Do they not say, do, I, I'm interested in the world of football. Like, because in the world I'm from, in business, 
there's a high degree of empathy. Mm. It's a very, you know, conversation, it's performance reviews, it's very, but we don't have a, an impending deadline day either. Mm. So I'm just trying to figure out if it's like a, go get your stuff, you're off, or if it's a... But I think, I think, it, I think it would be different if you did have a deadline day, you know, if you're, yeah. you know, <laughs> right? Yeah. People will get stuff done on that yeah. day. <laughs> so I, I, I think, you know, that rushes people, obviously, but um, yeah, definitely you're seeing like, there's a, there's this, there's this whole thing about a player should show loyalty and, but there's also works both ways. You know, they, you know, club, clubs at times, uh, if you aren't performing or you're maybe having, I don't know, issues or problems off the field, uh, sometimes that side of it doesn't get shown as well, you know, where mm-hmm. the club will, will quite happily get rid of you. Um, so yeah, it works, it works both ways. Um, but yeah, the, you, unfortunately, the, the business that they're in is is buying and selling players and winning football matches, and it is a ruthless industry. Um, but I, I went into that; I realised that very quickly, to be quite honest. Um, but I, I, I went into that with with open eyes. Do you do you regret leaving Liverpool? Yeah, I do a bit. I had a I had a great time at Portsmouth though, so and some of those memories were will stay with me forever. But leaving Liverpool is a difficult thing to do. And um, I was playing for England at the time and I was loving playing for England. I was playing well. And I just thought, we signed Fernando Torres. And I'm I'm pragmatic. I understand my role, if you know what I mean, as a player. He was better than me, right? So what do I do now? Uh, he's always going to play. He formed a great partnership with Steven Gerrard. Um, it's on absolute fire. I still believe in myself. I still believe I can play for England. I'm still a very good player. I'm just not on Torres's level. So I think he's not, he just wasn't getting injured the whole time I was there. And then, you know, I'd left and then he, he was sold quite quickly to, to Chelsea. And I saw players obviously that were, were playing. Andy Carroll. Yeah, I mean, you know, Andy Carroll, you know, there was Warren in and Gog, players that... Um, but I felt that, you know, I, basically I felt like I should, I could have played. Um, having said that, I'll never look back. I've not looked back on any of my, people even say to me now, like, do you miss football? No, I don't miss football. That was a time that I had that was the best. And I look back with such fond memories of it. Same at Liverpool. I don't think, oh, should have played there for 10 years. It would have been nice, but it was that, I still cherish the, the moments that I had with Liverpool. And also, the people I met some great people at Portsmouth and it's, a, it's such a good club and that was just off the back of winning the FA Cup and I really thought we'd get into the to the Champions League our team was that good so it was a it was a it gave me the opportunity to play and to enjoy my football and to carry on playing for England so do I regret it it's the one thing I look back on and think could I have stayed and could I've I've been at a top top club for longer but I love my time at Portsmouth as well you mentioned Gerard there, and I've I've seen you um, talk about Lampard and Beckham and Gerard and mm-hmm. Carragher. What was it that made those individuals great, in your view? What did you see? I saw something in like in those players that uh, that was slightly different to me. Like I'm not gonna. I enjoyed what I was doing. Like I looked at the t- the top top level players that I played with. And they never looked like they enjoyed it, ever. Like, yeah, Gerard, Carragher, I'd class in that, John Terry, Lampard, like it, it was always the next game, you know? And I think that's the top level mentality you need to have. 
Like for me, at times I'd go, we'd, oh, we won this, lads. Like, let's enjoy this one a little bit. Because we had a massive game on Tuesday, they would already be thinking about, yeah, that was good. But it's about the next one. It's always about the next one. And I admire that in people. Um, and I, I, had a, I had a steely mentality, but I also thought, what are we doing it for? You know, what? Yeah, of course it's about winning trophies, but also it's about this moment. We've just won like a huge game, like in the last minute, let's celebrate this moment and deal with tomorrow, tomorrow. Whereas sometimes the top level players... Like who? Yeah, like Stephen Gerrard, prime example of that. Um, just a constant... It looked like there was, there was no enjoyment Obviously, it was enjoyment at times, but it felt like it was just the next game was was more important than enjoying this one. And yeah, of course it was, but I was always a little bit like, can we just enjoy this one a little bit? Um, which is, you know, I think separates the... I, I'd class myself as an elite sportsman. I played at the top level, but I'm talking top, top. Um, and that's why they're who they are. Were they intense? so intense yeah 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 that's what but I think that's what separates people isn't it I think you know you've got to want to um sacrifice everything and you know I did when I was when I was younger and I did throughout my career but what I'm saying is that it's that 0.5 percent that one percent difference of um of just already thinking about the next game of you know managers do it um and as players sometimes we of course enjoy that win and, and think about the next game when it when it comes. But the top level players that I've played with, like you say, Lampard, John Terry, Stephen Gerrard, Jamie Carragher, I put in that, you know, the, the, the Man United boys, like the, the consistent winners are the ones that I think look like they don't enjoy it. And um, because they are constantly battling for the next, the next thing. Well, I read that you said um, some players couldn't, deal with the intensity of a Steven Gerrard and a Carragher mm. and that you also were much more orientated to try and please them than mm. the manager, which I think was Rafa at the time. Yeah, that's that right. Yeah. You were trying to please, more concerned with pleasing Carragher and Gerrard, who are the, you know, like club captain, captain, whatever of the team than the manager. Yeah, that's true. I'm trying to, I'm trying to put myself into the changing room and, and, and understand why that is. What were they doing? Um, they're local boys, right? They're, they're legends at the club. Um, when I think of Liverpool, I think of Steven Gerrard and, and Jamie Carragher. Um, like Rafa Benitez, I suppose, was a top manager and he signed me and I, you know, I, I got only good words to say about him, but Steven Gerrard and Jamie are absolute legends of the club and, um, quite ruthless in their, and, and quite harsh in their, appraisal of some players uh so I found myself in you know, constantly seeking their approval and my training was you know I always remember the first training session when Steve wrapped a ball into my into my feet and I, I miscontrolled one and it's like it's like a one look would be you know you don't do that here you're at Liverpool now it's one one bad touch isn't tolerated here <laughs> you know it's that it's only a look but it was enough to to make me not do that again. You know, that that kind of standards are different. Um, and I think you get that from from certain players like, like Stephen and, and Jamie. Would they go individuals? 
in the changing oh, room. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Really? I mean, it's their club, you know, and I think some people didn't understand that um, the level of passion that they had for, for the club. Uh, and, like, there's players that aren't, you know, everyone's different. Like, you, you'll know only so well, like, in a, in a place of work, every, there's no two characters the same, you know? So you need to know what, what makes people tick. And um, some people couldn't understand the level of, uh, of passion that they had for the club, of uh, standards that they had. Um, they might have come from a more relaxed club, but unfortunately, if you want to play for Liverpool, you have to have a certain um, way about you and a certain standard. And if you fall below that standard, then players like Stephen and Jamie would, would tell you very quickly. In front of everyone? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've seen... I've seen players be signed and be written off in one training session, <laughs> you know. Really? 15 million pound players coming in and like, he's shit. <laughs> really? What, I never like? No, I mean, that was, you, you wouldn't get many chances. Um, but th then I've also seen players be written off and then come back, which, um, which obviously in their eyes would, would, would make them a good, good fit for, for Liverpool. What do you think of Liverpool right now? Uh, Got the new Nunes guy coming. Yeah, I, I, I like Nunes. I think, you know, he's a bit... I think it's going to take him time to settle in. I don't think we've seen the best of him yet. But um, as a club, what Jurgen Klopp's done there, you know, I think... I look at young kids now who just expect Liverpool to win champ, the Champions League or win the, li the leagues. <laughs> um, you know, it's been 30-odd years before. It, it was a long time. And Jurgen Klopp's just changed the DNA back into you know, where they were in the 80s. I mean, it's that, it's that good. And yeah, they're, they're struggling a little bit now. Um, but what he's done for that football club is, has been nothing short of incredible. And, you know, we had some great players at my time at the club, but, um, you know, what they've done as a group has surpassed anything that, um, you know, that, that spell I had has uh, done. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the field. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Jürgen, Rafa, um, how many managers did you work, work under in your time? Um, God, I mean, loads over the year. Uh, Almost 10? God, that's probably more than that. 10. Probably more than that. For you, from working with more than 10 footballing managers at ver varying different levels and also at the very, very top of international and Premier League football, what made a really good manager? Um, I, I think there's lots of ways to manage and, you know, I did my coaching badges just before I, re I retired and you try and use a little bit of the good stuff out of, out of everyone. But, you know, obviously like Rafa very tactically, um, you know, Harry, Harry Redknapp was a great, 
people person, you know, like he understood people and what they wanted and uh, he made it a nice sort of environment. You know, Sven was saying was so relaxed, you know, in a pressured environment when you were going into a World Cup, you just Sven had that aura of calmness around you, which you, you needed. Um, so like, yeah, great managers that I've had along the way, um, but very, very different qualities in, in all of them. What about the, the opposite? What was the instances where you thought that's not good management? Um, well, it was certain things like, uh, you know, with Raffroff, there was a tendency to be too intricate, to be too um, methodical, too um, precise at times. Um, if you could mix a little bit of Raffer and a bit of Harry together, I feel that you'd have the perfect manager because with, with Raffer, it was like we're playing Wolves at home and we've got Steven Gerrard, Javi Alonso, uh, Fernando Torres. We've got the best back four in the league at the moment um, and one of the best goalkeepers. Just go out and beat them. You know, like I don't think it's that difficult. I don't think you have to play with a couple of holding midfield players and you have to have, you know, this what we do if we don't have, just go and beat them. We're at Anfield. Let's go and express ourselves. Um, and that was my only criticism, you know, like that, that I could have. I think there was too many times where we were thinking about the opposition instead of saying, we're Liverpool. Let's go, and, let's go out and, and batter them. <laughs> Who was the best manager you played for? Um... What is, you know, there's so many reasons for, for each one. Jerry Francis gave me my debut. Graham Ricks was a big influence on my on my career. Um, you know, there's good qualities of, of Sven. I thought Rafa was, at times, was incredible in some of the work that he did, some of the sessions, and some of the things tactically were, were really eye-opening. Um, but Harry Redknapp was, I, I don't think I'd be sitting here without him. Um, just because... He, un he understood football, he understood a player and he understood how to get the best out of you. And I think he got the best out of me, uh, certainly at, at Portsmouth, you know, at Southampton. At Southampton, I was struggling. I thought, I've just had a, a, a horrible time at Aston Villa. This is my time in the Premier League and it's not going well, I'm not playing. The manager leaves, Harry comes in, he goes, you know, this is my last chance, saloon. And I'm thinking, right, well, maybe I'm just a championship player. Harry comes in, it just changes like that. He says, you and Kevin Phillips will be in my front too. Uh, for the rest of the season, you'll score us enough goals for us to stay up. And uh, just that confidence, that belief. And what, like, I suppose I, uh, I felt my height for, you know, for the first time that mm. season. And I went out and scored 16 goals, I think, after Christmas. I was on absolute fire, got in the England squad and moved to Liverpool at the end of the year. Um, so that... That little spell of six months was crucial um, to my development as a, as a player and as a person. And would I be sitting here without that? You know, there's lots of things you look at. You know, would I be, would I be here without that, without that? And there's lots of really key, important moments. And that was definitely one of them, Harry coming in. It's crazy how much it's like someone believing in you at some point, when maybe you don't believe in yourself, can have such a huge impact on how you behave and then ultimately what results you get. Yeah, if you're if you're getting told that you're you know you're this and you're that, you're no good. You're it's not. I don't I don't think you have to be a real strong character to to be able to to cope with that. Um, and when someone comes in and goes, actually, no, you're you're doing great stuff. You know, keep like it lifts you. It does. It makes you feel it makes you feel better. And um, that's the way I would manage. And that's the way I think you have to manage these days. I think players are 
are different to, to 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 how it was when I was coming through. It was very much quite harsh industry, and I think now players are a bit more. You have to be a bit more of an arm around the shoulder guy than mm. a you know um, crack the whip kind of manager. When I sat here with like Patrice mm. and. Patrice Evra, Gary Neville, Rio Ferdinand, they all say the same thing about Sir Alex. The first comment they'll make when you ask why he was so good, they all say man and management. Mm. And they tell this story of how he was kind of this bespoke, almost like a unique shaped jigsaw piece for each person. So for Nanny, he was one Sir Alex Ferguson. And for like, for Gary Neville, he was a different shape because he understood everybody and understood which buttons to press, how hard he could press to get the best out of them. And we tend to think of like management as one, being one thing, like being one uh, one person to everybody. But even from what you've said there and what they've told me, it seems that great management is being like a bit of a shapeshifter depending on who mm. you're dealing with. I think that is exactly right. I think you've hit the nail on the head there. Uh, and the boys that, you know, you, you talk about there, of uh, it's spot on because you can't treat everyone the sort of same way. You can't even train the same way. If you go in, you know, you're telling all, all the players to go in the gym and, you know, do this, do a certain weight or, you know, be a certain speed, you can't, it, everyone is different. Everyone's a different character. Everyone's a different mould as a player. Um, you know, certain players, you can, like Cantona, for instance, you talk about Sir Alex Ferguson, you know, not many players could, could handle Cantona. Alex Ferguson got the best out of Cantona because he treated him different to how he would treat Gary Neville. And it's not, you know, it's not rocket science, but it's, it's something, it's a quality that not many people have. They're not able to adapt. It's like, this is my management style everyone has to fall in line with it. I, I, I don't think as a manager, that is the best way to go about things. It's about adapting to, to people that you might need to speak to on a regular basis. Certain people you might need to tell, you know, some home truths. Certain people that you might need to, um, you know, constantly get into the office or, you know, let someone else deal with him potentially. You know, you might spot a problem that they might have off the field that needs addressing. You know, there's so many factors to being a manager. Um, and I think, Alex Ferguson was well, he's proven to be the best at that. Reminds me of watching that Netflix documentary about Michael Jordan and called The Last Dance. Mm, brilliant. Well, brilliant. Fucking that changed my life though. I think I like I got like a Michael Jordan thing upstairs. Oh yeah, yeah. I was, you know, when people ask me if I was a basketball player, I actually wanted to be there. I was <laughs> <laughs> it was uh no phenomenal documentary, yeah. Changed really, really changed. I just, I'll be honest, and people will be surprised to hear this. I understood that Michael Jordan made shoes, but I didn't really know who he was before then. And really? when I watched that, it was one of those ones where you put it on and you watch the whole thing in one sitting. I was, it changed my life. Well, you, you're, you're younger than me. <laughs> I remember him clear as day, you know, oh, really? playing with the balls. Yeah. I mean, he, I think he's the greatest sportsman that's, that's ever been. It's a controversial statement. You know, there's so many sportsmen out there, but what Michael Jordan did was, was, was unbelievable. And that like, I love that kind of mentality, going into that mentality of like winning at all costs and um, watching that Bulls team because it wasn't just Jordan. Like mm. that, that that whole that whole team was was special. That's what I was, was going to say. Like Dennis Rodman, he was a character where, which yeah. sounds much like Cantona in a way, where yeah. he would go on benders for a couple of days. Yeah. And the manager goes, "Listen, that's Dennis. <laughs> that's Dennis." <laughs> it's like, honestly, though, like, they won everything. Yeah. But exactly, but like that's what I'm saying. You're like, could you? Dennis was a huge part defensively of that setup with the balls. And uh, if you didn't have him, if you didn't, and I know letting him, I think this is obviously, like, you know, the, probably too far, but letting him go to Vegas for a couple of weeks, at least you get Dennis back for those games at the end that are important. And I think it's obviously ridiculous for him to do that, but 
that was his, in his makeup. That was in his DNA. And, you know, is it, is it better for you to let him go to a rival or do you, do you accept that and win the, win the titles they did? All the great managers, like the ones we've talked about, seemed to have instances where they were okay to make an exception. I guess the risk is what message does that send to the other players? It's mm. almost a bit of an unfairness. If, how can, if Cantona or Dennis Rodman or whoever can go and do that, yet you're having me fucking show up every day and you're pressing me in a different way, that's not fair. Well, yeah, I, I totally agree with yeah. you. Um, but I don't know if the boys told this story last time, but, um, you know, the story of, of, of Ryan Giggs um, when he turned up for a team event and he's got no tie on. And Eric Cantona walks in with no tie and a pair of trainers. And uh, Alex Ferguson's obviously absolutely, you know, caned Ryan Giggs and told him to go home and get a, get a tie on. Like, who do you think you are? Eric walks in, sits down, doesn't say a word. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah, because... <laughs> <laughs> it's Eric Cantona, you know, and I think Ryan Giggs was just a, just as capable of of winning a football match as Eric Cantona. But where you do where where this does fall down is when those players stop performing, and I've seen that. I've seen players get treated differently, and that's fine until they're not Eric Cantona, they're not Michael Jordan, they're not Tiger Woods, they're not constantly winning games for you. Because if you set yourself up like that. You, you better perform. And yeah. not quite often they can because they're top players, but you are, you are creating a problem for yourself, I think, if you, if you don't consistently deliver. But maybe that's the reason they do consistently deliver because they are wired up differently to a lot of the rest of us. Which kind of makes me think about Ronaldo and what happened the other week with him storming down the tunnel, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Now, me and my friends in our group chat, we all have kind of different points of view on it. You know, people are saying, oh, Sir Alex would have let him do that, this, whatever, whatever, whatever. For, as someone that's been inside the changing room and probably seen, seen moments where a certain player was being disruptive, what was your read on that situation and the mm. impact of it? But it's, in all honesty, it's nothing new. I think it's because it's Ronaldo, it's a huge story. But I've seen it over the course of my career at players who aren't playing, we call it throwing the toys out the pram, um, you know, being... Uh, disruptive, uh, letting their feelings be known that they're not happy with the situation. Um, as players, it's constantly happening, so you, you don't worry. Because it's Ronaldo, it's, it's blown out of proportion. Um, I've seen it many times. I've seen it with a particular player. We're playing in a pre-season match. He just walked off the pitch while we're playing. And I'm like, you know, this is absolutely ridiculous. He's literally walked in with down to 10 men. No one even noticed he'd gone for the first couple of minutes. <laughs> and um, just, yeah, like, just, just, just fuming. Um, but my take on the situation is, I, I think it's disrespectful to the players that are playing still. They've just won, um, or just they were winning at the time. Uh, I think it was something that he probably regrets. Um, and I think it's something that the manager dealt with, and I, and I think dealt with well. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, because I remember you saying that good managers that you've worked with could keep the respect. Mm. And that being a key word, respect. Now, if he doesn't deal with that properly... Without doubt. You know, I mean, listen, players are on every little moment. Like, if you don't know the answer to a particular question, lie. And lie well. Because players will, if they, if they sense an element of you being unsure about a situation, they'll pounce on it. Um, you know, you're talking about a manager? I'm so talking you're... about management, managers. You know, players, if, if, you're, if you're a manager 
and you don't have control of the dressing room at all times, it's, it's hard to come back from that. Like you need to command respect and um, it's a harsh industry, like lots of players with egos uh, and trying to manage players that aren't playing with those egos is a tough thing to do. And when you've got someone of the stature of Ronaldo, like managing him not playing in the dressing room is a difficult thing to do. You know, put yourself in Ten Hag's shoes. It's a, it's a situation where the club of, I think, I believe, told him he, he has to stay because they want to play him. Now he's not playing and the window's shut. How do you deal with that problem? It's, it's going to be a huge issue. But I felt he dealt with it well. I think the club potentially didn't deal with it very, very well. If he wasn't going to play, they should have, they should have sold him. But they're now in that situation where, yeah, he's done that. He's been fined, I assume, and he's been dropped for the next squad. But it looks like he's potentially getting back in. Um, and that is what is is the best situation for the club because you, you don't want Ronaldo training with the kids uh, away, from the, um, away from the first team. You want him in and around it because he'll be an asset potentially at the end of games or, or, or to start some games. I'm really compelled by that point you made about like, as a manager, if you don't know the answer mm. to maybe a strategic thing, you're better off just lying than like losing the control of the room. Well, like say if, if you're in your industry, right? Yeah. If you're an employee of yours asks yeah. you, what should we do here? I, I don't know if it's as cutthroat as football, but I, I think it's better to have an answer yeah. than to say you don't know. Yeah, yeah. Right? So... Even if you don't know, because it's giving them confidence. Even if you don't know, you say, we're looking into that. We've worked on that. You know, that's something that we, you know, just make. The moment you say you don't know, I think there's an element of, um, he hasn't <laughs> got fucked. a clue. Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, there's no sat yeah, here. Basically, yeah. yeah, I think. And I think it was Guardiola who said it. Um, you know, these wise words didn't come from me personally. They were, yeah. they were Guardiola's words. And I think it was something to do with um, if someone asks you a question, you have an answer for them. Um, re- even if you don't know it, you'll, you'll go do your homework and come back to, to that question because you, you need to be seen as a level above um, the players. Uh, you need to have, you know, more, you need to be more clued up. You need to have more um, intricate details on the opposition. You need to know about football more than the players do. Um, so they have that respect for you. Was there other times, you know, you talked about losing the dressing room. Mm. Now I hear that on like, from pundits, I hear uh, maybe he's lost the dressing room. You sometimes hear that from like other commentators online. But I, I wondered if that's an actual thing that happens that you've observed where you go, manager's fucking lost this now. Players start questioning him, in, you know, yeah. behind his back or... Yeah, I think, I think you can see it. Um, when did you see it? Uh, I've seen it at certain times. I don't think it'd be fair to me for, for me to say names. Um... But I have seen it in certain dressing rooms where uh, a, a manager has lost lost it a little bit. Um, we had we had a situation at Stoke where we had probably the best dressing room I've ever been a part of, and then we added sort of sort of some more talented players, more than sort of hardworking, honest players, if you like. Uh, and we had a, uh, for a spell we had a really good mix of that real quality and that kind of determination and spirit. Um, and then it went too far the other way. It was, you know, almost almost too much quality and not enough effort, determination, team spirit, ethic, standards. They slipped, you know, and I've seen things that I'd never seen before. Um, I, I talked about the player walking off the pitch that happened in that, in that season. 
and it culminated in in relegation, you know. So when you talk about lost the dressing room, I didn't say I classed myself in that in that scenario because I was more of a I was an older player then and maybe I let things go things go a bit as well, you know, like it's not my standards personally didn't drop, but I let people get away with things. When I was an older player, like I should have been the Steven Gerrard in the situation, you know, I should have been a player that flagged it up maybe. Um, that wrangles with me. Like I, I let things go. I know it wasn't my job to do that, but I was a, an experienced player. Um, when you say you've not seen, you saw things you hadn't seen before. It kind yeah. of reminded me somewhat of what I remember Rio saying about when he moved to, I think it was QPR from Manchester United and he saw just a completely different dressing room culture. Yeah, exactly right. Well, let's ask our friends with Rio, I speak to him about that time. Feels similar. Feels similar in some ways. Like you you have almost too, too many um, doing what they want. Um, you know, just being late or... Little little things like that, like being being late, being late on the training pitch, being late um, for games. You know, not wearing the right suit or not wearing the right tracksuit to games, wearing whatever they want. You know, wearing caps when you're not supposed to. Um, just little things like that that makes you become lax. Like, and we we might go a goal down, two goals down, and you can see players sort of, you know, waving their arms around and not tracking back. And I remember asking a particular player like you stop trying, you stop working. And he said, yeah. And I said, what? And he said, I did, yeah. I said, why? He said, we were three down. I, said, I couldn't believe it. You know, it's 30,000 people in a stadium, right, that have paid to watch us play and you've given up. And, and I know it's, it's horrible, those games. They're horrible. You just, but at least you've got those run round. Um, and that's, that's when I knew... We're in big trouble. It's funny that it's the small, the small things. Like just they wearing, all add up. Yeah, they all add up. Does that not start with a manager though? In those situations where the manager's just not calling it out enough, he's not punishing. You know, he lets one thing slide, lets two things slide. Before you know it, you're at the bottom of the fucking slope. Yeah, that was exactly what happened. Um, there were certain things that were let go, and you're like, whoa, and then you feel like you can get away with more, with more, with more. And there was a certain thing where we, you'd have to run after a game if you didn't play. So at that time, like I was on, I was 37 years old, you know, I was, sometimes I was on the bench and I'd be out there running and, you know, there was a younger player not, not out after the game doing this fitness work. And I came in, I'm like, what's going on? You know, why, why am I 37? I'm out here running after a game and this 25 year old is, is not, which I didn't want to. He didn't want to. Didn't want to, right? So these, these are the standards that I'm, I'm talking about. So but you've got to, that's, the, the, that's, you've been asked to do it. <laughs> you, don't, you don't pick and choose whether you do it or not, but that was allowed to happen. Anyway, it happened again. Anyway, it's this particular player said, right, because he hasn't run after um, the game, we're all in on Sunday, right? So the whole team coming on Sunday, um, we were coming, this was supposed to be our day off. So we're all in training and the particular player didn't turn up for training, right? So we're all in because of, because of him and, uh, and he doesn't turn up. So, I mean, you can imagine what the, what the lads are like, but just little, I say little things. I mean, that was a big thing, but just standard slipping and listen, you know, it all ends, everyone knows where it ends, it ends badly. When did you decide that 
your football career was over. Tell me about that decision and that that time in your life. Uh, yeah, I, I was lucky. I got the opportunity to get out of that that dressing room that I was in at Stoke, which was difficult. Um, and I got the opportunity to play for the exact opposite at Burnley and I finished in the Premier League. And I knew that I was done that season because I was on the bench a lot and there was players playing ahead of me that I knew should have been ahead of me. <laughs> and I thought to myself, I am just a plan B now. I'm, you know, I, I'm coming on at the end of games and I still felt fit. I still felt I could have an impact, but I knew inside my own head. So I told my family, I told... Um, you know, I told Abby and I told, you know, the kids were still very young. And uh, we all went to the game. So, they, you know, they didn't all come. I had, you know, a young baby, you know, they, mm. they didn't often come to the games now. I didn't play much. So they all came and it was nice because I knew, no one else knew, but I knew that it was my last game of football. It was against Arsenal um, at, at Burnley. And uh, all the family came on and, you know, when he walked around the pitch at the end and I've got a picture at home on the wall of me and the, it was three kids we had at the time, got four now, believe it or not. But the three of us um, on the pitch and a lovely picture of me walking out, it's my last game of professional football. I must have played, you know, 600, 700 games. It was my last game. I knew it, but no one else did. Um, but yeah, a lovely picture, a lovely moment. And then it just sort of comes flooding in that, it's it's over. 20 years I played. I left school at 16. I retired at 38. 22 years every day of my life doing something that you loved. I, I look back on it with such fond memories. I was so lucky to have played um, in a, in an era that was was full of great players. I managed to play for England, and you know I probably exceeded what I thought I would could ever achieve. So always look back on it fondly when people ask me. Um, no, do you miss it? No, I don't miss it. I, I cherish the moments that I had. And your dad, was your dad there that day? No, you played a huge role. Yeah, my dad was there that day, yeah. And, uh, you know, he was the one because he was there every single, I don't think he missed a game. Really? And he was part of my superstition, uh, bizarrely. He was part of, you know, if I didn't see him before a game, I'd feel unnerved. You know, like I'd feel like, where is he? And don't get me wrong, there were times where I was on the bench towards the end and he got a season ticket at QPR. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and deservedly so, you know, I didn't want to put him through that. Um, but it was, yeah, I mean, he was he was with me every step of the way. He came through every game? Yeah, yeah I mean, didn't, I don't think he missed many. <sighs> Handful, you know, of those 600, 700, right from when I was a kid. Um, so yeah, it was like a comfort blanket when I saw it. And he would, he would watch me... Not even at kickoff, he would watch me. He'd be the first in the stadium. Like I, w I would walk out at um, before the warm up, and I'd see him, and he, I'd, I'd always see him. You know, six foot five, I'd always be able to see him, uh, and he'd give me a little wave, and he'd watch how I warmed up. And then after the game, he'd even say, "Like I knew you'd have a good game in the warm up because he'd always watch even the warm up." So yeah. When your career ended, did you ever ever have a conversation with him about? Um about your journey in football, I guess. Was there ever like a, any conclusive conversations about mm. how it all went and... Yeah, you know what, like, uh, uh, we had sort of like a like a, a bit of a retirement um, video, if you like, and I've got together a load of ex-players and managers that I played with, which was nice and made it, put it on a big screen. Um, but I don't, I don't think I've ever sat down and discussed at length um, 
my career. I mean, life's too busy, isn't it? You know, like I look at, I've got a, you know, a wall like you have and a few sort of accolades, match balls, England caps on the wall. Only in one particular room, I only allowed like a little dungeon room. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I've got them on the wall and like, I look back and I look at some pictures on there and I look at the moments and I think like they were some great times. Um, but like I say, life moves quick and I love, I love what I'm doing now and I've gone straight into doing other things and I was very conscious of that. Like I planned, I planned a little bit of that, you know, I planned while I was still playing, I did the podcast and I did the, the first book that I did and like, and I did my coaching badges as well. So my coach, I thought, you yeah. know, maybe I'll be a manager. I didn't know, but I just basically, I, I was so scared of waking up on that Monday because every player that I've, I've ever played with just says to me, like, when you're retired, like, you've forgotten like that. You, It's difficult. It's hard to get your head around it. Keep playing as long as you can. You always hear these horror stories. So I was so worried about it. I just thought, right, I need to do everything now before I retire. And I think it was the best thing I ever did was to stay, was to do things while I was still playing, to to test things out and see what I want to go into. and Start building that bridge, I guess. A little you? bit, yeah, to the other side, if you like. And um, like I say, the book and the podcast just went bang and that I just got propelled into a into a world in the in the media, really. Was there ever a moment when you re- after you'd retired where you where you had a bit of a down day and you thought, you know, because I remember re- reading, I think in your book where you talk mm. about how you spend those 20 years, like everything's sorted for you. Your schedule's sorted, you know where you're going to be. You kind of know... There's so much structure in your life and then suddenly the mm. structure's gone and a real clear sense of like orientation and collective purpose is gone. Mm. Was there ever a, a, a post-retirement moment where you go, ugh? I don't think I've had that. Really? You know? And I feel really lucky. Like, I, cause I know so many players that have really struggled since they retired. Um, but I feel so lucky in, in, in what I'm doing now. And like, I'd love to sit here and like, I've got to be honest with you. I, no, I can't, I, I, have, I haven't had that. And what I, what I don't like is not having that that structure. Like for for instance, I know exactly where I'm gonna be on September the 16th, on you know, February the 12th. I know where I'm gonna be, I know where I'm gonna be training. Like now I couldn't tell you what I'm doing next week. <laughs> like things come up, things change. Um, I don't like that. I like, I've been institutionalized if you like. I'm in a, I like getting told on a Monday we do this. You know, I don't wanna, it was, I suppose for 20 years, I didn't have to grow up. Yeah. You know, now I do. Um, I came straight from school to people. You know, they used to take our passports off us. You know, we weren't even allowed to, they didn't trust us enough to, to, to get ourselves to the airport. You know, it was, that's how football is. Everything's done for you so you can purely concentrate on football. And I, I quite like that in a, in a weird way because you, you solely focus on one thing. Whereas now there's lots of different, things that I do um and lots of choice choices yeah like lots of decisions to decisions, make yeah. yeah it's like being an adult it's not great <laughs> it reminds me of you know Raphael Rowe yeah. who's the guy who was um imprisoned when he was younger for a crime he didn't commit sentence to life yeah. came out and he was telling me it was like honestly when I came out it's like I went to a supermarket and there's like seven types of beans yeah and he stood in the supermarket going what the fuck do I do what do I do and yeah. he hated it and he'd have argue, him and his partner would clash because he was never used to making decisions in prison. You get one type of fucking beans. So true, though. And, but like, yeah, I honestly yeah. like with with football. Like, you are you that you are told 
where to be, what to do at all times until you're on a football pitch. But even some degree that as well, you know, mm. your manager's telling you what to do. But I quite liked it in some ways, but obviously the freedom is great in other ways. You know, like I have a Christmas now, I can spend time with the kids. Mm. If I choose to have a week off at, in, during the winter, I can have that. You know, there's, there's pros and negatives to both. Are you a workaholic? Um, I think I've got a good work ethic, definitely. Um, Without doubt, I enjoy it. I enjoy getting up and having a purpose. Do you feel like you're out of balance though? Yeah, I'm finding the balance really tough. Okay. Yeah. Same. Really tough. Yeah. Um, obviously, you know, I speak to Abba about this as well because we, I, I struggle. Like I'll have one week where I'm constantly on the go and, um, and then one week, you know, a little bit quieter. But yeah, I sort of sold her the dream of retirement as being retirement and it hasn't quite worked out that way because I love oh, doing what yeah. I'm doing. What did you sell her? Well, I sold her like we began the gym every day, you know, little juices and walks. <laughs> <laughs> we'd be on dog walks. I said, you know, we will just, Rome, yeah, we'll go Rome. to we'll quality go to time. Rome. Yeah, 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 quality time. Quality time, yeah. Um, and yeah, it's not quite worked out that way, but she knows I'm passionate about what I do. I'm very, I, I love what I do now. And um, I'm still involved in football, which I love. You know, like I, like I say, I do the podcast that I absolutely love doing um, and various other bits and pieces come up. And I'm in a fortunate position. I know I'm in a fortunate position to be able to pick and choose the stuff that I do. And I do it for, purely for enjoyment. Um, and of course, you know, I try and make it as the best it can be and so I can earn off it. But the, the main focus was the same as my football career, really, was to do something that you enjoy. And I'm lucky in the, in the fact that I, I can still do that. Is your main... Um, dispute in re your relationship because this is the answer for mine is is this issue of quality time mm -hmm. is like that's the thing I struggle with most is doing all this stuff and constantly da 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 da, -da and then being there to be to give this person quality time that they want where you just go for the fucking walk and you just do like nothing yeah. it seems like nothing but obviously there's something it's something picnic but do you you must find that hard like I yeah, I find hard. that hard to but she's the same you know. Like, um, I think it'd be easy to say that, uh, I don't know, like there's a misconception of um, maybe footballers' wives that, you know, they just relax mm. all day and, you know, she's so driven and she drives me, to be honest, and she's, uh, I run all my decisions past her and I don't think a lot of people know that about her, but she's like, uh, she's on it. And, um, you know, so that's that's good in the fact that, if we go for a walk together, we'll have some quality time together, but we both won't switch off together. <laughs> you know, like we're yeah. still bouncing ideas off each other. And um, and I'm glad that I can have someone like that. So, you know, yeah, of course we switch off at times, but we, we're, still, we're still very on it, both of us. So your podcast, Absolute Smash Hit. Mm. A lot of, of ex-players, ex-athletes have started podcasts. Mm. I can't think of any that have risen to the heights that yours has risen to. Mike Tyson has a great podcast mm. in the United States. Um, it's really been a bit of a cult phenomenon, the show. And as you kind of said, you know, I've heard you talk about the driver's seat a few times and mm. it's always, you're always, you know, saying very nice things and saying that, you know, our production and stuff is, is, um, is great. But it is like a couple of lads in a pub mm. chatting. Yeah, I, I suppose that is, that is our thing. I, I think it was... It is a reflection of me. It's what I like to do. So, and I think, I suppose we could now, because things have gone well, upgrade our setup a little bit. Um, but it doesn't, it feels like 
we need to stay where we are. We love being in the pub. We like, um, you know, having a bit of a drink while we do it. Um, and it feels certainly during lockdown, you know, we have lots of comments from listeners and people writing in and they feel like they're in there with us, you know, and it feels like, obviously this is a, a different kind of podcast, you know, more serious, more enlightening maybe. Um, but I try and, I try and take people inside the world of what it's like being a footballer and it's a mad, funny world. It is, and and, and of course it's lighthearted, but hopefully it's a little bit informative as well. And uh, when I say I love doing it, it's genuinely the most fun. When I say to Ab, um, oh, I'm going to work, she's like, are you joking? <laughs> <laughs> I'm leaving her with the four children. <laughs> And I'm going to a, to a pub in town um, to record with uh, lads that I get on really, really well with and um, just talking football. I suppose that is, that is the, you know, for a lot of people, certainly in my world, that's the ideal job. Uh, and I'm, I feel very fortunate I've got it. The podcast offers people that kind of, that sense of connection and community, like they are in the pub with you. Um, which some people don't have, unfortunately, these days in, in a world that's getting lonelier. Mm. But at the same time, it's not just like, it's not just banter. I remember seeing the episode with Prince William mm. and where you talked about mental health and mm. um, those kind of topics. And I think one of your your co-hosts, I can't remember which one, shared mm. um, some of the feedback that you guys get from the audience that are listening. That particular episode with Prince William, how the fuck did you get it for a start? How did you, how did you, how did you get Prince William to have a, have a pint with you on the podcast? Yeah, there, 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 there are points in this podcast. Like, obviously, like, where, where it all started from, I didn't have, you know, I was just telling a story. I didn't know what a podcast was. You know, obviously now I know that, you know, there's a huge industry of, of things. But I, I was just talking literally as I was talking to my, how I talked to my mates. And uh, obviously, yeah, we built up like a, like a big following. And then people started calling us about coming on, about coming on. Um, and that was a call we had from the palace what? was, was, I promise you, was, you know, we had, we had, there was one point there was like, we had Elton John had called and, uh, and Prince William had called, not, not personally, but you know, their team of people had, had called us about coming on. And obviously, uh, Without no, I mean, that's a different story. It was funny, but um, with Prince William, we, you know, we made it happen, and we ended up going to the Kensington Palace, um, which was an amazing day out because we we took it, you know, our our group of lads, and we had a, we had a beer over the road <laughs> <laughs> while we went in, and then um, you know, Prince William, I talk about the Samrat, you know, the Indian restaurant um, that I, I used to go to with my mates as a kid, and when Prince William brought in the, the delivery. Um, and put it down and I was thinking if my, you know, my mates we always to go there as kids my family and you know he's doing this and it was just so surreal um, but like you say we got to talk about a range of topics and I suppose you know certainly in football there's a lot because there's a stigma in football of um, you know it's very macho and you have to you know you have to be um, you have to man up you know like you you, you have to there's this stigma and I think that this is why sort of the target audience for Prince William and his heads uh, I think it's Heads Together or Heads Up Charity um, for mental health is targeting the right people if you like mm. the, the people that don't speak out um, so I think he wanted to tap into sort of our audience that would mm. be very much uh, don't show any weakness um, you know that football mm. world if you know what I mean so yeah I think that was something that he wanted to to touch touch base with I'd done something with him called a um uh, a, a, a team talk I think it was uh, a royal team talk I think it was called on BBC and we talked about you know mental health and stories in football that's the first time I shared my issues as um, 
you know, I never ever talked about anything. I was one of those people that kept everything. So yeah, it was a nice, it was a, it was great. To, it was a great experience for us as a, as a podcast. And, and I think hopefully it helped a few people as well. You talked about on that podcast, going into the changing room and like opening up to your teammates at one point. Yeah. I mean, I, I found it really difficult to, um, I'm one of those people that keeps everything aside, right? I don't, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't talk about, I see Abby every single night, like picking up the phone to her friends and chatting about anything. I mean, I just don't do that. I don't, I wouldn't dream of picking up the phone and, and, you know, talking about a problem. Um, but ha since these kinds of things that I've done, since that podcast, since, uh, you know, I've done a, uh, various you know the um, November campaign yeah. I've worked with them I've worked with uh, various kind of men's mental health charities and they it is it does make you think and you know I have started doing more stuff I have started you know reaching out to my friends and you realize actually that people aren't always people say they're always all right but they're not that's something I've realised. I think the quote from that from that podcast with um, Prince William was, I, I, you'd gone into the dressing room, you'd, you'd shared how you were feeling with your teammates and instantly you kind of felt lighter because of it. You mm. felt better for, for opening up. Yeah, that's that's something that I, I definitely found. Like I've... When was that? Um, no, that was the, the Royal Team Talk. We, we opened up, to, it was me, yeah. Thierry Henry, um, Danny Rose, who was quite open with his mental health problems. Um, Gareth Southgate, uh, I think Dan Walker, that was the presenter and, and Prince William. And like, when, when you actually get like a, like a group of lads there talking, like Prince, Prince William wasn't Prince William, you know, mm. Thierry Henry wasn't Thierry Henry. It was just a group of blokes talking and, you know, Prince William's talking about bereavement and you think, you know, oh my God, like you don't, I don't know. It's like, that's not real. It's like a not real life. And you think actually when he's sitting there, he's just a lad. He's lost his mum. And he's right? got that fucking brain. Like, yeah, like it was an amazing talk because you're not seeing her as Princess Diana and you're not seeing him as the future king of England. You're seeing him as a man who's struggling, who's lost his mum. And I think sometimes when you read things and you you look at things, like I say, it's that it's that thing of playing football and not realizing that they're actually it's on a human level it's just a, he's just a, a fella that's that's lost his has lost his mum and has struggled with that over time and you were, when you say you, you opened up you're referring to the stuff you've talked about today with yeah me personally yeah I opened up about uh yeah looking different a bit you know like and and getting heckled and being sort of that impressionable teenager and sort of dealing with that with that kind of pressure of looking different, if you like. Um, bizarrely, that's become sort of like my superpower now. Mm. Uh, it's become sort of a, me. It's like I'm recognisable. I am. Um, I think people understand like all my insecurities, if you like, have been what has probably made me successful in in the stuff that I've gone on to do. When you do look back at your success. And in hindsight, and you go, okay, maybe this was a big part of it. This was part of it. What are the the, the key things that, in hindsight, you go, that's why I was successful? Because earlier on, you said like most of the football players, especially the strikers, didn't look like you, mm. but you were still successful. You still played at the very top of the game. You still had the England caps. You still scored all those goals for England. So, what was it about you? Um, I, I, listen, I had 
I had ability. I, I, I you know, I did, I did, uh, <laughs> I felt like I was a good player and I worked on that. Like that was something that if I was going to be tall, I wasn't going to be this, what everyone thought I was going to be, you know, um, which was you know, that big target you can lump the ball up to, you know, I wanted to have technical abilities. I worked on that. I constantly worked on that. Um, so that was obviously something that stood me out. Um, and then I had to work on my, on my heading um, because I was incredibly tall, but I didn't have to jump as a young lad. And then when you get to play professional football, you then realise that, you know, people are going to jump, they're going to beat you in the air. And it looks ridiculous if you're six foot seven and you're losing headers. So I had to work on on my heading. Um, and obviously it's determination. It's the the, the will to succeed. Um, it's the desire. Um, it's the ability to deal with knockbacks um, that stand you out probably from, from the rest. Knockbacks. Ever, did you ever have an um, experience with, especially through the, the period with Liverpool where you went eight, 18 games without mm. scoring and the various twists and turns throughout your career. Did you ever experience anxiety? Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd say so. I mean, listen, I'm not an expert on this field. Um, I, I wouldn't say I'm an anxious person. Um, like I say, I'm a glass half full kind of person, but um, I would say, of course, like in football in terms of course, I was anxious. I was snatching at uh, chances. Um and was I anxious off the field? Yeah. Couldn't switch off from it. Couldn't stop thinking about it. Couldn't sleep. So couldn't sleep. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't have been able to sleep. Um certainly after games. But I found that difficult anyway, that the kind of buzz that you get from playing a match under the lights especially is so difficult to sleep after I, don't, I think physically impossible at times where are you now in terms of your mental well-being and your mental health yeah good good yeah like I would never I would never um, I don't think I'd class myself as as, as ever as having problems um, I've had issues that I've had to manage personally like everyone has I think but I'd say I'm in a good place I just need to get the balance right between um, you know this new field that I'm in if you like and and family life, you know, I need to I need to get the right the right balance where I'm working enough to sort of satisfy that that hunger to keep going, um, and not miss what is important, you know, which is my kids, which I adore, and I want to see, I want to see grow up, um, and I want to be at the forefront of that. I want to be hands on, you know. So, I've got to try and work that balance out. Yeah, somehow. that's my biggest problem. I always, you know, I think I always hear this voice, which is like, when is enough enough? Yeah. Like when is enough going to be enough? Like podcast is going great. Business is going great. You've done achieved loads of things. Like mm. what, what else do you need? When is enough enough? I, I, this, that, it's, it's difficult one because I, I think it's, for me, it's about, it's about like the work, but it's about enjoying it. And um, you know, if it stops being fun, then I think that's the time to, to call it quits. Crouch fest. <laughs> 19th of November. Yeah, nineteenth of November. It's um, what is? I mean, I've I've seen it because I watched all the videos from like two thousand and nineteen. Yeah, that's right. It looked yeah. like a right fucking laugh. Liam Gallagher oh, was there. It was there. so much yeah. fun. Yeah, but the thing is, like, people buy tickets and not have a clue what they're letting themselves in for. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it is one of the one of the best things that we've ever done. And we just thought we'd scale it up this time. Last time we had Liam Gallagher on. We had Catherine Jenkins singing the Champions League anthem, who the fellow that wrote the Champions League anthem spoke to us. Uh, Tom Grennan, you me at six. We had um, you know 
people dressed as referees, fancy dress. Um, it was absolute carnage. And uh, yeah, now we're at Wembley Arena. We've scaled it up. Wembley Arena? Uh, Wembley Arena. Jesus Christ. Yeah. So, I mean, we've probably bitten off more than we can chew. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you. But yeah, great guests and, and looking forward to it so much. What, what, what? What are you promising for this crouch first? Well, what, that's the thing. We don't promise anything. Okay, so you don't we say anything. We literally say... don't say a word okay. to anyone. And we've got, obviously, I mean, some of the things that we've we've been getting up to has been uh, a lot of fun. And some of the knockbacks that we've had have been been priceless because we're asking things that Wembley Arena has, has never seen before. Um, but yeah, I'm, honestly, I can't tell you how much fun the last one was. And if it was half, if it's half as good, it will be, it'll be a great event. Well, everyone listening can. There's a few tickets left, so you can go. They probably they might not be by the time this comes out, but you can go buy tickets online for Crouch Fest. It looks like. I mean, I watched the highlights from 2019, and it looked like It looked like a huge group of mates pissed, <laughs> having a laugh. And That's exactly of, yeah. what it is. Um, yeah, I can't dress you up anymore, but you're welcome to come. <laughs> if I'm here, I'll come for sure. For sure, it looked really, really good. What is what is your goal now? What is next for you? You've all these things going on in your life, the media stuff you're presenting on BT, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. You've got the podcast, you've got this amazing book you've just written. Well, it's just come out in October, I believe. How to be an ex-footballer. Um, the reviews for this book are insane. Much of the stories you've told um, told to me today, some of them are in here, some of them are in your previous book, but both books are Sunday Times top bins bestseller. Um, what What is next? What is the... Yeah, I like I say, like this, um, I, I'm finding my feet. I have no clue. I had no clue where I was going to go. I, I, I didn't know what angle to, to go for. Um, I, I'm doing things because I enjoy them. And like, when you say, what is your goal? It, it, I don't want to come on here, diarrhea of a CEO, right? And everyone's got a goal. Everyone's got a purpose. Everyone knows what they're going to do. I have to be honest with you. I don't, I don't have a goal. I, I don't have, I don't want to be doing this in five years or that in five years. My goal was achieved. Like, all I wanted to be was a football player. All I wanted to do was be, uh, was do it at any level every single day. And then I felt like I, I did that. I achieved it. I achieved more than I ever thought I would. And now everything is, you know, that, that, that is happening to me is, is, are things that I'm enjoying and their routes and avenues that I'm taking, but there's no particular goal. Um, and I know that might be difficult for you to, Not especially to, to understand, but I, I just can't, I'm, I haven't got a, a, a motive or a plan. I'm just living each day and enjoying each day um, that I'm given. And, and I feel like I'm blessed in the situation that I'm in, but this is genuine. That is mm. the most genuine thing I can tell you. I, I mm. don't have a, an end goal. I think you'd be su surprised how um, common that is. I've, you know, I think people think that I have everything figured out or a god, like necessarily like a North Star or a god, but the, I've said on this podcast a million times that I've never written a business plan in my life. It's really about like doing my best today and doing that every day and kind of being open to the things that come along because goals can also be really unhelpful in the sense of like, it might make you miss an opportunity. If you had a goal when you left football to become a coach, you might have missed the opportunity to do the podcast or, you know, or all these other things. Well, I feel like it's also now reminded in some way you go like you have the end goal, but like you say, these missed opportunities, like, every, like I did the book, I did the podcast and things took off and then opportunities come off the back of that. Mm. And as long as those things are going well, mm. the opportunities will continue to come and then you might find that you enjoy something else or a different avenue. And that is... 
where mm. I'm going. I'm on a journey that I have no clue where it's going, but I'm enjoying it and long may it last. At the start, you, you mentioned that the way you were treated when you were younger, looking a bit different, meant that you used kind of self-disparagement, criticising yourself, making a joke at yourself first as a defence mechanism. Much of the reason why people love your books, love your podcast, is because they're like really, really funny mm. and they make people laugh. And even from like hanging out with you today for a couple of hours, whatever, you are one of those real funny people. I mean, on the front of your book, it says, a comedy genius. I didn't write the, that, by the yes, way. Yes, you did. It's <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but it's interesting. I just find it interesting as an observation that the thing that people criticised you for created a quality in you, which is seems to be, from my very naive assumption, like critical now to your success and why people are so fond of you. Is that an accurate assessment? Oh, it's, it's spot on. Um, you know, I sort of, I, my kind of like humour and being able to laugh at myself was a, was a self-defence mechanism where people were trying to take the mick out of me. I would take the mick out of myself in a better way than they were about to do. So that makes me self-deprecating. Self and I think that is very uncommon for a footballer to be self-deprecating. It was groundbreaking. <laughs> and I don't think it should be, but let's be honest, I think it it was a bit, you know, not many players that play for England let their guard down at any point or want to criticise themselves um, or have a laugh at themselves. And that, and that that is something maybe that has, has set me apart that I'm aware of um, from other players. And that is not me being contrived or, you know, trying to force an agenda. I think anyone who has played with me over the course of 20 years will, will say to you, this is the person that they, they knew in the dressing room. But I think I'm able to, to showcase that a little bit more by being less guarded because I haven't got a football club uh, telling me to not talk too much or, you know, you're a footballer, shut up. Like now I can do whatever I like. And fortunately, I've been in a position where, you know, I suppose the general public or fans that are, are buying into what I'm doing are enjoying it. And, um, you know, for as long as they are enjoying it, I'll continue to do it. And when they're not, I'll fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> It, remi it reminds me a lot of um, Lewis Capaldi, who I, who I sat with, where he's just seems to just be doing whatever the fuck he wants to do. Like, yeah, well, like, I, I admire him so much, you know, <laughs> like, he's the kind of thing that I, you know, I, I love to see, like, and I watched it, I watched it recently, I think he was on Jonathan Ross, and uh, I was brilliant, like, he's hilarious, and he looks like he wants, he's enjoying what he's doing, and, um, you know, he's himself, and I think that that is what I'm doing, and I'm thankfully... Um, people are in hopefully enjoying it. 100% they are enjoying it. I think that's a huge understatement. And it seems to be the case from the people I've sat here with on this podcast, um, seems to be the case that those that are themselves, that are able to build a life based on being themselves, are living the most sustainable and fulfilling lives. It's fucking difficult not being yourself for a long period of time. And it's not fun, right? Yeah, well, you can't so, get tripped up if you're if you're being yourself. Yeah. You can't, the, the guard never slips, does it? I but think. it feels like a risk. To well, some people, you well, can it, see why. Yeah, it's a risk if no if one you're likes you. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. You're actually right. It's only a risk if you're a dickhead. No, you're completely right. Um, <laughs> Be someone else if you want to know. <laughs> <laughs> we have a closing tradition on this podcast where Ooh. the last guest asks a question for the next guest, not knowing who they're going to ask it for. Right. And the question that's been left for you is... 
What moment has caused you to be the most afraid in your life? It's difficult. I think I've, I've been in situations where um, none of this matters, does it? Let's be honest. Right? I, I, I'm thinking about football terms. I was thinking straight away. I went to like, what about when I didn't score when I did this when I wasn't going to make it as a footballer? Mm. Like, all, like none of that matters, does it? Um, your family's the most important thing, and when you have a a scare personally or your one of your you know close people, your wife or your kids has an issue, um, that is when you're the most scared that you'll ever be. And I think, you know, I've had I've had those those worries, um, and and that's when you you really realise what's what's important. Obviously, when the you know the the pandemic and you know we were in lockdown and that kind of thing, and you realise actually none of it matters you know like it was just it was I had my family and we were fortunate obviously to be in a in a in a nice house and I just thought you know what we are incredibly lucky even if we don't have if we don't have anything we've got each other you know and that, that I think that was I think it's the most scared when someone when when you have a scare with someone close to you which we have had and um you get through that that's that's the most scared I've ever that's exactly what came to mind for me. It was when, I think it must have been 10, and my mum called me and told me, I believe she called me and told me she had cancer in her breast because she had found a lump and then it transpired, it was a cyst, it was fine. But that period of mm. like several days believing that my mum's going to die when I'm 10. Yeah. Nothing, I mean, everything pales in comparison and you realise that fuck all matters, as you said. Yeah, like, like it's so weird. Like I went to like football then like yeah. straight away then you actually think oh wait a minute that doesn't it doesn't matter does it no, it's the most scared I've been is when you have a, a scare in the family without doubt Peter thank you thank you for so many reasons thank you for inspiring me in this podcast you've been a big inspiration for us you know like the production is one thing I know you've commented on the production mm. before but what you have is something that's so like authentic and brilliant and that's the impossible thing to create to, to find a, like an authentic formula that's resonant with, with the audience that you have and give so much to them it's like, it's, it's a lot and it's not fucking easy. And, you know, I, I watched your playing career. I've watched, you know, I've watched you play in all the clubs you've played in. The thing that I'm like, that is fucking unbelievable is actually what you've been able to do since, you know, and that says a lot because you got to Champions League finals and you paid for the best clubs in the land. But watching what you've done since, I think is even tougher. Um, that's just my perspective and I've taken a huge amount of inspiration from that your book is amazing Crouch First is obviously going to be amazing because you guys just have a magic that is like un un impossible to replicate and so you got you know I, it's fun to watch you guys it's really really fun to watch your journey and to not know where it's going to go I mean like Prince William walking in you're in this pub toilet like oh, you know I just don't <laughs> it's fucking brilliant and it's, it's perfectly authentically brilliant. So thank you for coming and doing this. It's a huge compliment to us that you'd come and do it. And it's been great to chatting to you and meeting you. No, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Why are you laughing? Oh, I'm just laughing because I like smiling. <laughs> <laughs> I have enjoyed it. No, I genuinely have enjoyed it. And it's nice to see a, a professional setup. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. Thank We're you done. Man.